You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. I get wrapped up in in messages of songs like that because I think about my dad. And uh, I want to be a man like my dad is for the Lord. And uh, I'm thankful for that song, how it conveys those truths. Well, uh, this has happened to me multiple times in my life, and it's happened to me a couple times this week. Have you ever said something you wish you could take back? I figured that would capture the attention of, uh, of dads and people in here today. I've heard often that Jace is, I've heard people tell me that my son Jace is my mini-me. They say he's my, the spitting image of me, and... Um, I had a lot of people telling me that this week because it was the first time that many of them had met Jace, my six-year-old son. And I was talking to someone who had met Jace for the first time this week, and, and uh, he said to me, uh, this, this man, he's a pastor, an older pastor, he said, yeah, your son, he's a great-looking little guy. And I unintentionally proudly replied, yes, a lot of people say he's my mini-me. And then as I registered what I said to him, I thought, that probably sounded pretty full of myself, didn't it? You know, whether or not my response was taken out of context, the truth remains that my son does look like me. And it reminds me even of 1 John, and I want to highlight how special it is when fathers and sons bear the same qualities. We've been talking about family traits. That's our theme in 1 John, and, and it's just fun when a son and his dad are a lot alike. I just, I like it. I I appreciate that my son wants to be like me. I love to see little boys that want to be like their dads, and and I think of of the things that I receive from my father, and and I realize there's a lot of him in me. Uh, I think about my dad and I, and you may call this a crutch, um, and you may call it a sin that I need to repent of, but I like the same teams that my my dad likes. And we happen to be in our household Dallas Cowboy fans. So I know I just made a lot of enemies, and I'm sorry for that. Uh, I can't help it. And uh, we like the same teams in basketball. We like the same teams in college football. We like the same teams in baseball. Because he's my dad, and I wanted to be like my dad when I was growing up. We have the same, very many of the same mannerisms. We, we have the same likes and dislikes. Uh, uh, we even have the same family whistle. Now, if you've ever been in the store and you hear, (laughs) then that is me looking for my family. They've left me. My dad taught me that years ago, and my dad can whistle very loud. My brother and I can too. And we can be across the store, even at a super center, at a Walmart, and I can be in one place, he can be the next. And you hear, (laughs) and you hear over here, (laughs) and within just a couple of minutes, this is before cell phones, by the way. I don't think we've realized we could just do this just as easily now, but it actually just dawned on me that I could just use my cell phone next time. There's a lot about my dad. I just, I want to be like my dad. And I know that sounds simplistic, um, but my dad is a godly example, and I know not everyone has that. But even in his profession, my dad's a preacher. My dad spent most of my growing up years pastoring and and preaching, and now I get to do what I've always dreamed about doing, which is, is pastoring a church. I didn't mean to get emotional today, but 
I'm thankful for dads. I'm thankful particularly for mine. You know, but there's something else unique about the father-child relationship. At least there is in my case with my dad and I. This is supposed to be funny, and I'm crying. You're like, what's the conflict here? You know, I can always pick my dad's voice out in a crowd. When I was in high school, I played football, and, and I, I played on defense, which I, I, I love to play football. And, I, and I, you know, defense is a lot more fun than offense because you can just hit people really hard, which every boy growing up likes to do that. And I would play on defense, and I played at a pretty large, for, for Wyoming, where I was living, it was a pretty large high school. We, uh, we had, it was uh, about 1,000 students in the school, which I know there are much bigger schools, but in Wyoming, to have 1,000 people anywhere is kind of a, a win. And, and in our stadium, at our football stadium, you know, it could seat a couple thousand people. And on Friday nights and, and at home games, we'd have a lot of people in the stadium, and of all those people, I'm telling you, this isn't, this isn't an exaggeration. Um, if I would miss a tackle or I would miss an assignment, I could literally hear among the thousands of people my dad said, my dad would say, Jason! <laughs> Out of frustration, Jason! That, that, that's his frustrated with his son voice. Jason! Uh, thousands of people, literally thousands of people in the stadium, and I could hear his voice every time. And still, when I, even when I think about that correction from my dad, it still makes my heart race a little bit. When I think about the times that he would, he would get on to me and he would correct me. But you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, hearing that unhappy voice still brings something up in me that causes emotion. And, and that's what, though, that's part of the role of a dad. Is if my dad had been content with me missing a tackle... And just let it go. I would be wondering how much he really cared about my success. I'd kind of be wondering how much he really wanted me to make the tackle. Or, or if he was even paying attention. Or if he was even engaged. Part of being a dad is that you spend time in correction. That you spend time helping them to see where they need to change. And in many ways, John's letter, his first letter here, is a letter of correction to the family. And I just want you to consider the test we've talked about. Even in, in this chapter here, uh, we've had the test of obedience. We've had the test of consistency and the test of maturity and the test of imitation, the test of love. John is giving tests and he's trying to make sure that the family knows whether or not they have traits, whether or not they match up with the family traits. And he's about to talk later in this chapter, he's even about to talk about what we shouldn't love as a child of God. John is causing the members of the family to consider what it looks like to be the spitting image of their father. He's trying to get them to see that if you want to represent your father as a family member, you've got to be this way. And if the traits don't match, he starts to question the validity of the claim as a family member. You know, that's pretty tough to hear. He doesn't hold back. In some ways, I view it like, Jason! Except John's like, family! These are, this is what you need to be doing. It's that voice of passion, of correction to say, you've got to step it up. You've got to do better on the next play. And, and he wants them, he doesn't hold back because John doesn't want them to live their lives in a way that's second best. He doesn't want them to settle 
for something less than what they could be. So he doesn't hold back. And he even says that don't, those who don't bear the marks are liars. Now, I would definitely label John's letter as being confrontational. Now, he's either correcting the way that they're thinking or he's training them to think a certain way. But, but he's being confrontational here. He's, he's not sugarcoating it. He's not backing off so he doesn't hurt their feelings. And all of that brings us to this passage that we read, verses 12 through 14. And what stood out to me as I studied this was this section feels different. It almost feels like John wants to take a moment to just address the readers in a different kind of way. He backs off of that confrontational Jason tone for a minute and he starts to talk about categories of people. He talks about little children in verses 12 and 13. He talks about fathers in verses 13 and 14. He talks about young men in verses 13 and 14. So what does John mean by using these terms? And, and I'm going to bring this around. I, I want you to follow the train of thought. And then I'm, there's a twist, a plot twist coming up here. You know, most of the time we would simply um, consider these as age categories. If he's talking to little children, these are the young ones. If he's talking to young men, these are the, the, the teenagers. If he's talking to father, fathers, these are, those are a little bit older. But th- he's not just thinking in terms of birthdays here. He's not just talking to people by age. He's talking to them by spiritual experience. So little children in verse 12, when he says, I write unto you little children, it refers to anybody that's part of the family. This term includes fathers. It includes young men. It includes little children. And if you think about it like Thanksgiving dinner, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner, you have, what do you have? You have an adult table. And what else do you have? You have the kids table. And some of you are like, you're like 21, you're still at the kids' table, and you're like, life is unfair. Because you're waiting to get, but trust me, the adult table is not probably not nearly as fun as you think. The kids' table is where all the action is. But there's an adult table, there's a kids' table, and then there's like the weird uncle that gets to eat on the porch. But uh, not really. Little children is, is referring to everybody in the house at Thanksgiving. Uh, adults children. This is everybody that's a family member. When he says little children, he's referring to everybody that's saved. The one qualification to be included in this category is found in the verse when he says, I run into you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And I don't want to overlook verses like this because the focus will be somewhere else. But this refers all the way back to verses one and two When John wrote, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's the name John's referring to. And he is their propitiation for our sins. So when he says in verse 12, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, he's referring all the way back up to verse 1. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven for Jesus Christ's sake. So let me give you just an overview here because the opportunity arises and I know we have guests here this morning and I'm thankful for it. But let me just tell you as an overview, God is holy and he is without sin. We, on the other hand, are all sinners, which means that God's holiness is offended by our sin. He can't stand the presence of sin, not because he doesn't enjoy our presence. It's not because he hates sinners. He just hates sin because he's holy. And therefore, sin must be judged by his wrath. And instead of visiting each of us to pay for our sins, 
In other words, he doesn't come knocking at the door with a warrant for our arrest. No, he, co- he doesn't come visit us for our sins' sake, to pay for us to pay for our own sins. No, he visited his own son, Jesus Christ, on a cross, and he judged his son for my sins. Jesus Christ took the payment for my sin and bore it in his own body on that tree. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his own son, to die in our place for our sins on that cross. And if you've ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior, um, then you are part of the family. But if you've never received him as your Savior, then you are in the crosshairs of God's wrath. Now, his wrath is not poured out uh, to you specifically as an individual, again, as much as it is toward your sin. And if anyone listening to the sound of my voice this morning has not been born again into God's family by trusting Christ's payment for your sins, you can be saved this morning. And I invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. What John is saying is, in the same way that a family member is part of the family by blood, anyone part of God's family came in through the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't just join the family because your, your father was a pastor or your grandparents were Christians. You come in through the blood of Jesus Christ, which means you must go through the cross. That's what little children in verse 12 means. Verse 13, then, he uses a different term. He says, I write unto you fathers. This is used to signify those who've been saved the longest. And I want you to keep up as we go through this. I want, you, I want to explain it, and I'm going to move pretty quickly. Fathers means the ones that are sitting at the adult table. This means what you think. These are those that have been part of the family for a while, that, that bear the marks of the family resemblance, that, that have respect and influence, and, and they come with wisdom, and they, they have longevity. They're called fathers. These are the mature saints. These are those likely uh, that meet the qualifications of the test that John is giving. These are the ones that are doing it the right way because they've been doing it for a while, and they have reached a certain level of spiritual maturity. There is maturity that can only be attained only a, over a long period of time. It just requires it. There's a certain seasoning that comes with age that a young man, no matter how zealous and no matter how knowledgeable, sir, as a young man, you can't have a certain seasoning. It just it takes a while. And I, you know, I think about Pastor Spencer being here for so long and the seasoning and the leadership and the, the godliness that he that he portrayed in the image of Jesus Christ for so many years. And I had to, in my own mind, as a young man coming in, say, I I can't let that be pressure for me because I haven't been in it for 40 years. I can't replace that. You can't replace that. You know, there's a certain seasoning that comes with longevity. There's maturity that comes as as you've been doing it for a while. John uses the term, and with fathers, he uses the term both times, You've known him from the beginning, which means he's talking about time. It takes time to know God the way mature saints do. Just because someone has been saved a long time, though, doesn't mean they've grown in Christ. You probably and I probably know people that have been saved for years but are still baby Christians. That's not what this is talking about. These have grown in Christ. The fact that they're called fathers means they've likely reproduced themselves spiritually. They have members of the family that they've brought in, members of the family that they've mentored. This is what John means by fathers. It's, it's pretty obvious. It's simple. 
with today being Father's Day. We're going to come back to this term in a minute. Verses 13 and 14, he gives another category. And this category is young men. He says in verse 13, I write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because ye have overcome the wicked one. And then in verse 14 again, he says, I have written unto you young men because ye are strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. Now the young men, they may be sitting at the adult table or they may be sitting at the kids' table. They're kind of in the in-between stage. But the picture that John gives that the, is that the young men have strength. He says that, you know, you've overcome the wicked one. You are strong. The word of God abideth in you. So even though the young men are less mature and they're less experienced, even in their youth, they have strength through the word of God. They have strength to the point that they've even conquered the wicked one. And that is a sign of young men. Young men reach a certain point, 14, 15, 16, and they've got strength. They've got endurance. Just this week at at camp, the camp that I preached in Tennessee, uh, we followed the group from Stillwater around. And and on, on Thursday, they call it the Day of Champions because all of the sports competitions culminate And so our young men were in all the games on Thursday. They're in football, they're in basketball, they're in softball, they're in volleyball. They've got all of these games and they're playing in one right after the other. I think they played two football games, three basketball games, a few volleyball games. And from 2 o'clock until 5.30, they're playing in the heat of the day the whole time. And you know what? I don't really worry about it because they're young men. Like if it was you and I reading the schedule, I get tired. And I'm sweating and I need a break and I need water. But they just run the whole time. Curtis did it last year. Just a couple years ago, Jacob was there. They were running all afternoon. That's what you do on Thursday. And, and it's not a big deal because young men are strong. Well, in the same way, these young men are strong. And I'm thankful because it gives us an idea um, that young men who aren't fathers yet can be strong in the Lord. You can be strong, young men in here, ages 13 and up or 12 and up that are in this room tonight. If you have the word of God, you can be strong. If you'll take the time to pour yourself into the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, then according to these verses, I know it's not literally your age, but you can take the sword of the spirit and you can overcome the wicked one. Most young men your age are being overcome by the wicked one. They are being conquered by Satan himself, which is what the wicked one is talking about. But you as a young man, and even you young ladies, it's the same for you. You can have a walk with God. If you have the Bible, you have every resource available to you that I have available to me to be a good, strong Christian in the Lord. I'm going to encourage you to do that today, especially since young men is mentioned here, especially to the young men. We can have confidence in this book. If Jesus Christ use this, the word of God in the Old Testament to combat the temptation of Satan there in Matthew chapter 4, I don't need any other answers. I have what, I've, what I need to resist his power. Amen. There's one final category at the end of verse 13. We won't spend much time on it, but he uses the term again at the end of, thir- uh, at the end of verse 13. He says, I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. And I do feel, just to be fair to the text, this is a different Greek word than the first children in verse 12. This word implies more infants, babies, brand new Christians. 
So you've got this category over here, my little children, which is the umbrella. And underneath the umbrella, you've got men, fathers, you've got young men, and then you have little children, newborn Christians, babes in Christ. You've got those that are just infants enough to know that they know the Father and that's all they've got. Under the umbrella, you've got these three categories of family members. Great. Thanks, Pastor. Now what? Well, welcome to my weekly world. Because I present to you the challenge of dissecting a text and trying to make it apply, especially on Father's Day. And so I thought about, okay, I could use um, the description of fathers and I could apply it to dads in here. It would make it for a very valid message, absolutely. Dad should be mature in the Lord. Dad should have a walk with God that spans many years. Fathers should be an example. They should have influence over the younger members of the family and the church family. They should reproduce themselves, not just physically, but spiritually in Christ. That would be very valid. It would. I also thought about using God the Father as the focus for Father's Day because he certainly plays a role in the text here. John went to, or God went to great lengths to give us an opportunity to be part of the family. That'd be a great Father's Day message. I could write about knowing him as father. I, you have a father in God, even if your own earthly father was absent or not a good godly father, or you grew up without one or you don't have one now, that, that would be an effective message. But as I meditated on this, I discovered kind of an angle that it's not new to me, I'm sure, but it's, it resonated with me, and it gives us a bigger picture of these verses that we're actually dealing with today. Today, I want to consider a different father. I want to consider a, a father that's not even addressed as father in this text. Although he's certainly present throughout the text. I want to consider the father not called father in this text, but the father called I. Verse 12, John said, I write unto you. Verse 13, John said, I write unto you. In the middle of the verse, I write unto you. Verse 13, I write unto you. Verse 14, I have written unto you. Verse 14 again, I have written unto you. And in case you're wondering, John is writing this letter like a father would. He's writing, he even uses the term children. So if it's a man writing a letter to children, what would you call him, the role he's playing? You'd call him father. And he uses the term children 14 times in the letter. And even more possessively in chapter 2, he uses my little children. And so when I stopped to consider the tone of this letter, it became apparent to me that John is the father writing to his children. And on this Father's Day, what stood out to me was not so much the, the, the subject, and it's not so much the fathers John was addressing, or the Father in heaven, but John himself... As a father, he's writing to children with the hopes that his words can help them. And he writes about things like, well, he tells them the truth. Fathers, we need to tell our children the truth. We need to know what the truth is so that we can tell them the truth. He gives it to them straight, which dads ought to do. 
Especially in this culture, we need some dads who are willing to tell the truth and give it straight. I'm just I'm going through the text and seeing all the things that he did and thinking, wow, this is great. He even emphasized an inward relationship in verse 8 when he says, which thing is true in him and in you. We ought to teach our children, dads, we ought to teach them that, that the Christian life is inward. It's not just what we do, it's what we are. He tells them in verses 9 and 10 to model love. They need to love each other and our children need to learn to be selfless because this is a selfie focused generation. He lets them know the importance of having strength. Young men even can have strength and dads, we need to teach our sons, our children, but our sons especially to be strong, especially in an increasingly feminized culture. These are all valid lessons. I could go on and on about the lessons that John teaches. He doesn't let their sin slide. Dads, don't turn your head away when your children sin. He helps them plan for the future. You and I, dads, we should. He warns them of the dangers of the world. We need to assume the world is out to destroy our children. That's what good dads do. He tells them how to behave like a member of the family. In other words, he kind of tells them, like my dad told me, remember your last name, you're a jet. You don't just go out and do what you want. Remember your last name. There's lots and lots of life lessons. I could go on and on. And like a father telling his children how to live as part of God's family, what John does is spend time doing the important things of a father. And as I thought about what he's doing, I thought, well, he's spending time in correction. And he's spending time in training. Correction and training. Two very important pillars of a dad raising children. Correction takes place when you see a deficiency and you take steps to fix it. When our children disobey, when they're forgetful, when when they show patterns of rebellion, when they have faulty mindsets, it is our responsibility, dads, as the head of our home, to take measures to help adjust our children toward righteousness. It's a very spiritual way to say it, isn't it? It's our job, dads. And it's not a matter of anger. The world looks at it and says, I can't believe that you would punish your children. No, it's not to be done out of anger. The only reason that you have in your mind that this is a wrong thing to do to, to punish or chastise or, or, or get on to your children about their deficiencies is because you've seen it done the wrong way. Chastisement is not a sin because the Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So if God is involved in chastening and God is involved in scourging, which chastening means to correct or reprove or instruct, scourging means to punish. If God is involved in chastening and scourging, then it can't be ungodly. God proves his love by punishing our sin. You say, that just sounds so mean. No, listen, what would be mean would be for a God who knows that I am living in sin to just allow me to continue to live in sin and not have enough concern about my spiritual life to let me know and intervene, to let me know that my fellowship is broken so that he can bring me back to fellowship. God doesn't punish and scourge and chasten because he's trying to be mean. He punishes and scourges and chastens because he wants to have fellowship with me and he's a holy God who has has never sinned and he wants me to have a walk with him and I cannot if I'm in sin. So his chastening and his scourging is done out of love. He wants to walk with me. 
He wants that relationship. And dads, we have the responsibility as an, an image bearer of God to take responsibility in correcting our children when they sin. Absolutely. A loving father corrects his children. Don't let the culture scare you out of correction. Proverbs 23, 13, withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. And I didn't like that verse when I was a kid. But my dad corrected me many times and I did not die. And as a matter of fact, probably the most, for the most part, the man that I am today is because I had a dad that loved me enough not to let me just stay in my sin. Not abusively, in love. He would scourge me. He would chastise me. He did not withhold that rod. And I did not die. And as a matter of fact, I've been able to live in a way that pleases God. So correction. That's what John's doing. Training. John is also doing that. Training takes place before correction. And let me just say this to you dads today. If more dads would take the time to train, there would be less of a need for correction. Because training is tough. Training means that you have to think about scenarios before they happen and then train or teach your children, instruct your children on how to behave in those life situations. That's what John is doing. Very often he's saying, here's what will happen and you need to be prepared for it by thinking this way. Training means practicing scenarios with them so they won't have to be corrected so much. When they're young, how do you train? Well, you train your children not to touch outlets. You train your children not to climb up the stairs when they're really young. You train them not to pull things down off the table. Why? Because you love them. You don't want them to get hurt by rolling down the stairs. You don't want them to get hurt by pulling something off the table on the, onto themselves. You don't want them to get them to get hurt by, by pushing their chubby little fingers into an outlet. You want to protect them. You're trying to preserve them. And so you take time to train when they're young, you teach them that they shouldn't touch the stove because it will burn them. You teach them that they should stay out of the street. You teach them how to behave in the house of God. These are things that we train our children to do. Very many times when our kids were little, we would sit them down when they were getting ready to come into church, um, which, you know, I think that children ought to be able to sit in church. And, and we have Sunday school classes and things for children that are they're more than welcome to go to those. Um, but, if, but, but on Sunday and Wednesday nights at our church in Stillwater, when they were three years old, they're sitting in the service. And, and when they were two and a half, we would start being like, uh-oh, it's coming. So we would put them in the couch in the living room. And even a couple times I'd put on a preaching tape. A tape is a, it's a little device. <laughs> An audio recording through my Bluetooth speakers. So I would put on a, an audio recording of a sermon and we would practice. Here's how you sit in church. Now our kids don't, they still don't always do it perfectly, um, but we wouldn't, we, they're not supposed to just sit in color or sit and talk or they don't have to sit and play. I mean, if we train them enough, they can sit in church as a three-year-old and sit and listen. They may not register what's happening, they may not be taking it all in, but for 45 minutes or an hour sometimes, however long the preacher goes, our children, we are, we are, we are settling 
for them to be, be, to be less than what they could be by saying, oh, they're not capable of that. No, they are. It takes training, and the reason, though, that it doesn't happen is because it's hard work. And even the older that they get, you know, our, our, our girls, our two older girls, for one year, they spent a year in school. And what, what did we do before they went to school? We sat down and we said, okay, at school you're going to face these situations. Here's what you say. Here's what we want you to do. When this happens, here's what we want you to say. And they were articulating our philosophies to their friends. And their friends were talking about their philosophies at school. It was pretty cool. But we had to take some training time. That's what training, training will prevent lots of correction. And dads, we've got to take the time to train. We have to, to, uh, to believe that our kids can, can rise to the occasion. And we shouldn't, you know, a lot of parents will say, well, I've got to protect my house and I've got to put outlet covers and I've got to, you know, take everything off every table. And we have to live in this, basically this room with just walls and floors with no dangers because we don't want to hurt our children. No, train your children to, to do the right thing so they don't hurt themselves. It doesn't help them because when they're 18, they will not be living in a room with just walls and floors. They will be out in the real world and they will be tempted and they will be tested. And if you've never taught them or trained them how to respond in certain situations, they'll be a, they'll be a casualty. So we've got to take the time to train. We've got to take the time to correct. That's what John is doing and I'm thankful for the example that he's giving us here. We're often better at training than we are correction but if we would get some of the training time in and we could spare a lot of correction you know sometimes we're better at correction at correction because it doesn't require thinking my kid did something i don't like and i just respond you should respond in correction but very often if you are parenting um, in a reactionary manner then they're not getting all the lessons they need and that puts you in a position where you are more likely to fail in a moment as a parent Take some time to train. We've got too many passive dads. Too many dads that are staying out of their children's lives and moms are naturally having to fill the vacuum of leadership. We certainly need dads to be active in the raising of our children. And our culture is what it is, I believe, because of, of, of passive dads. Dads that aren't present. I believe the answer to our country's problem lies first with God, but second with fathers. If dads would take an active role and follow godly principles, I think our culture could be salvaged. And these are all great points from the text, but even that's not my primary application today. See, I believe that in here, most dads are doing what they can. They want to be active fathers. They want to provide godly leadership for their families. No dads are perfect in their training or, or in their correction methods, but I believe most dads in here are making the efforts. Training and correction, when done in love, are essentials if you want to be a good father. But I believe that training and correction represent only two-thirds of what I'm going to call the dad triangle. And I even have a nifty little image up here today. My PowerPoint skills are unparalleled. So you've got, in the dad triangle... You've got correction and you've got training. And these two are absolutely important. But when I stepped back and considered the text today, what John is doing here, it dawned on me he's doing something many dads are not very good at. 
in the middle of saying some hard things to children, John suddenly stops. And for three verses, he takes time to do something different to the children. Let me give you a summary of what he says in verses 12, 13, and 14. In verse 12, John says, I just want to remind you that you're part of the family. Your place in this family is secure. No matter what you've done, you'll always be part of the family. In verse 13, John is saying, every member of this family has an important role. Some bring knowledge, some bring strength, some bring zeal, some bring experience, some bring examples, but all bring something important. In verse 14, John is conveying this. I praise you for the good things you've done. I value your victories. I cherish your strengths. I'm not focusing on shortcomings right now. You're part of the family. You're important to our family. I value and I praise you as part of the family. Dads, we can be good at conveying truth and teaching lessons and correction and training. We're consistent with a strong hand. We train, we lead, we provide, we direct, we correct. But the third part of the dad triangle that we can learn from, that John just takes time, he just stops, and he takes time to do this one thing, and that is provide as well some encouragement. Encouragement. My timing is off. There you go. You see, correction and training are absolutely important. We must have correction. We must have training. Or we're robbing our kids of being all that they can be. But I just want you to notice that John stops in the middle of all the correction and training. And for just a little bit, he encourages God's children. See, I believe most dads find it easier to correct than encourage. And it's likely that more dads have a plan for training their children than they do for praising them. Colossians 3.21, though, says this. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. See, fathers, we obviously intend to deal with our children in such a way that it elicits anger. It can elicit wrath in our children. Yes, we should nurture and admonition like it says in Ephesians 6. We should train and correct. But if all we ever do is correct and train, we are not doing what we should as dads because we have a tendency to train and correct and discourage. We have a tendency to train and correct and bring about anger. We have a tendency to correct and train and bring about, as Ephesians 6 calls it, wrath. See, the balance to correction and training, according to John's example as a father writing to children, is encouragement. We should be strong. We should be firm. They need correction and and training. But don't forget that John has just finished speaking about love. If we love our children, dads, if we love our children, we will balance the triangle of correction and training with praise, with encouragement. When there's a small victory in an area of of obedience, celebrate it, dads. When something is done right, make a big deal of it. If you've given them instruction and they come back and they've done it exactly like you wanted them to, praise it. When a mistake is made, fix it and move on, but give them hope for the next time. When intentions are good, even if the results are not good, don't make it a matter of rebellion. It's not always about rebellion. Praise them for their effort. Correct them in how they can do it better next time. And then move on. When obedience is accomplished, 
reward them unexpectedly. And I don't think it's bad for us to consider the motivation of reward because when we obey our Father, we're promised rewards for it. So reward them when they obey. Encourage them in the middle of the training. When we must correct, sprinkle it with hope. When we need to take time to train, do it with a smile and let them know that their joy is dependent on their obedience. Don't make every issue a matter of rebellion. Sometimes it's a matter of neglect. Sometimes it's a matter of immaturity. Encourage their attitude, even if the outcome is not what you hope for. As a dad, there will be plenty of opportunities to train and even more opportunities to correct, but the opportunities to praise seem to be in the part of the triangle that gets missed the most. Remember Proverbs, like Proverbs 25, 11, that says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. And most of the time, we say you need to treat people that you meet out on the street. You need to, to use words that, that are fitly spoken like apples of gold and pictures of silver. And we say amen to that. And I want to speak to people that way. And, and I want to be that way to other people, even at church. But we forget that that verse applies just as much in our homes as it does to the stranger down at Menard's. It applies to my children that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. It applies when my dealings with my children just as much as it does in my dealings with you while I'm here at church. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Good parenting is, is a, this is a good parenting reminder that our words of encouragement can leave our children with hope instead of with injuries. And very often, dads were bull, were bull in a china closet. And we come at it, and we hit it head on, and we're strong, and we're heavy, and, and they need it sometimes. But good parenting reminders like this tell us that it doesn't always have to end with an injury. It can end in hope. And honestly, when we correct and train, the goal is always to leave them with hope. The goal is always to say that, that next time this can be better, I'm correcting you so that next time I don't have to correct you again. Amen. Discipline, train, it must be done, but dads have a tendency to do it in such a way that it leaves our families angry and discouraged. Overreacting or overcorrecting, I should say, can bring about tragedy in driving. You ever done that before where you, you drift and you don't realize it and you overcorrect? It's very dangerous. But you know it can have the same dangerous effect, dads, when we overcorrect our children. Meaning we correct and we train, but we don't balance it with encouragement. I remember when my children were very young and my mom, their mom was away for the weekend on a ladies' retreat and and I had left them in the nursery to kind of watch themselves for a couple of hours. And they had gotten into something and it just was, uh, it was just a huge mess. And I ended up spending a large part of the day working on it. And I remember walking in and discovering that. And they were probably, I don't know, six and five, the oldest two. And I remember my reaction. It was less than biblical. My words were Harsh. Overcorrection, overcorrecting is what I was doing. Because what they did was not out of rebellion. What they did was because they're kids. And I, as a dad, was a rookie enough to think that they could spend an hour or two by themselves and not get into trouble. 
And I remember as I lashed out, I told them, you know, what they had done wrong, and I'm cleaning it up, and I'm angry, and I make them sit down, and in an unreasonable manner, I responded to what they had done wrong. And I remember leaving the room and coming back and looking at their faces and thinking, I've really crushed their spirits here. Because in the middle of all of it, I was simply angry. And yes, they needed to be disciplined. And yes, they needed to be trained. And yes, they needed to be corrected. But if I could have, in my mind, just remembered that the balance to the dad triangle is encouragement, I probably could have spared that day a little bit of a spirit crush. A little bit of a destruction um, of of their spirit when it comes to how dad deals with them. Because if we overcorrect, we can damage their spirits. And that would be the biggest loss of all. Fathers, let me exhort you this morning to use the principles of encouragement and praise at home. Stop in the middle of all that training and all that correction and remind them of their position in the family. Just like John did. Tell them they're loved. Tell them that no matter their mistakes, they're still part of the family. This is a blip on the radar. It's not the end of the road. Let them know there's hope for the next time. Remind them they're important to you and that you love them as John has just gotten done talking about. Use fitly spoken words to praise and encourage. You know, it's amazing what a few words at the right time can do for a child. Especially if it comes from the one who in their lives is the, the authority figure. The one, dads who at home is the one doing the correcting, the one doing the training, the one who sometimes has to lay down the law. But when you just stop and simply encourage and praise and, and help them to have hope, I think we would find that the dad triangle does a pretty good job at raising balanced children. Children who have discipline. Children who have obedience down. Children who do things the right way, but children who do things also, though, with the right spirit. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want, at the end of my child-raising years, to have children who go through all the right motions, but their spirit is not intact. I don't want children that simply operate like robots until they get out of my home, then they go do whatever they want, because they never saw balance from dad in the way that I treated them. Be balanced. Use correction and training, but complete that triangle. Sprinkle it with encouragement. In the end, we can help our children be balanced. So the applications today, I think, are pretty obvious, but utilize encouragement as balance to correct and train. Dad, are you balanced? Is there one of these that you tend to lean toward the most? You don't really spend much time training, but you're always correcting. And if you would just balance the the correcting with some more training, you may not have to be in a position of frustration so much. Or maybe you're too much in the encouragement. You're not spending time in correction. Because that balance can go the other way as well. Dad, are you balanced as a dad with your children? Primarily, are you encouraging and praising in the middle of all the correction and training? Second, how is your spirit when you correct and train? Because you can crush a child's spirit and lead them to anger and discouragement if you leave love out of your interactions. Third, are you an active father who, or have you become passive in the process? 
Your children need their dad to take the lead. In the middle of correction and training, dads, dad, I'm looking at myself. We need to stop and say, my little children, there's hope. My little children, I love you. My little children, you're doing well. My little children, you're important to this family. My little children, let me just encourage you. We'll deal with the correction, we'll deal with the training. But I want to balance those interactions with praise. Every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.